Well, good morning. Welcome to Plum Creek Chapel for our regular nine o'clock Bible study hour as we continue our look ahead. And as I go through each week, looking forward to Sunday, I find myself more and more eager for what lies ahead. I got to tell you, these are crazy, crazy times. And it just seems like uh, every time you turn around, uh, something discouraging is happening. We now have a Supreme Court justice who cannot define what it means to be a woman or what a baby is, but uh, you know, it's just a sign of the times. But today I'm especially encouraged because as I was going through this material uh, yesterday and adding some more uh, verses in to, to really bolster some of the observations that I'm going to be making today, I was just filled with hope and filled with encouragement that you know, God's got this. Uh, we are headed towards an incredible kingdom on earth someday, and it's all part of God's plan. And so we certainly need to be patient. We need to um, pray and seek the Lord and run to Him for refuge, uh, let Him hide us under the shadow of His wings and so forth. But um, at the same time, what a day it's going to be. So, So we're going to begin this morning and for the next few weeks as we sort of slowly bring this study to a close, look at some characteristics of the coming kingdom, the millennial phase of the kingdom. But before we do that, just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, we have uh, the What Lies Ahead books out on the table. You may have noticed we're kind of getting ready for Easter Sunday and we've moved all of the information tables out to the lobby and we're going to probably leave them there for a while and kind of make that the one central hub for everybody to get information here. Visitors, uh, regular uh, attenders, members, whoever, that's your one-stop place for uh, bulletins, prayer lists, sign-up sheets, uh, informational brochures about some of our ministries and things like that. Uh, so we just wanted to have more room in the auditorium itself for uh, seating, uh, especially in light of uh, Resurrection Sunday next week. So out there on the table, you'll see uh, the What Lies Ahead books. I always like to mention what's been going on during the week in terms of resources for you. We did a Monday uh, podcast called The Spirit of the Antichrist, the Gospel, and the Urgency of the Hour, and that was hosted by Make It Clear Ministries and Stan Pons. That is still posted at the Not By Works podcast channel, or you can just go to notbyworks.org and listen to that. Really fun interview. Stan is such an encouraging guy. Uh, uh, it made me even want to buy the book after he finished uh, talking to me. Uh, on Tuesday, our regular uh, Tuesday podcast with the Christian Underground News Network, we talked about the topic, It is Seldom About What It Is About. And Curtis always does a great job as well. That's a more, uh, it's kind of a standing regular thing we do every Tuesday, so it's more conversational, and we always just really have a good time fellowshipping with uh, Curtis. And Pastor Dick is also usually on the the uh, podcast as well. Uh, we just recently at Not By Work started switching over from DVDs to streaming. And so some of you might be interested in checking out some of the streaming videos that are available. You can check that out at notbyworks.org slash store. And uh, these are, it's a really great system that uh, we've invested in so that you can stream it on your mobile device, on your computer. You can also download it if you have a reason to actually download the video file and use it somewhere else. Uh, so check that out uh, as well. And then, of course, I uh, want to encourage you to uh, keep spreading the word about Spirit of the Antichrist. I talked to someone this morning who said they wanted to give four copies to each of their four uh, in-laws. 
And uh, she said, might not go over too well <laughs> with my in-laws, but uh, they need to hear this information and they need to see uh, what's going on. So I uh, encourage you to uh, check that out as well. Then along those lines, if you know someone who might benefit from the information in this book, because it is rapidly coming upon us. I mean, we are definitely, in my view, in the end game, as we've talked about in this Sunday morning series as well. Uh, but, you, you know, you don't think they'll... Uh, they'll get it. You can, we have a new system uh, at our online store where you can purchase a gift card, send them a note when you purchase it, just like any other e-gift card, Amazon or whoever, you purchase it online, tell them who you wanted to send it to, put in their email address, and you can add a little note. Hey, I recommend the Spirit of the Antichrist book. Great way to kind of passively encourage people uh, to check that out. And, you know, the, the information at notbyworks.org is all grace-centered, clear on the gospel, and it's something I think will edify uh, the body. So with those announcements, let's uh, turn our attention to some characteristics of the millennium. So we talked last week about some distinctions between the millennial phase of the kingdom and the eternal phase, or what is often referred to as the millennium and the new heavens and the new earth. So if you look at the chart that has kind of served as our uh, kind of placeholder for this whole study to keep things in perspective. Uh, we started, you know, over a year ago by talking about why it's important to study the end times, how 16%, roughly speaking, of the Bible relates to unfulfilled prophecy, how God has a plan of the ages. Uh, the next great prophetic event is the rapture, when we're going to be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord, uh, and the outpouring of God's wrath. And we've just kind of methodically been <clears throat> going through uh, from left to right on this chart uh, the end times events. Now, the chart doesn't mention everything by any stretch, and we took a lot of detours along the way. We spent quite a bit of time in the book of Revelation uh, looking at uh, some of the supplemental information from that book. Uh, if you look here on the screen in the black uh, lettering there in the center, these were some of the things we looked at, like the 144,000 witnesses, the description of the beast and the false prophet. We talked a lot about end times Babylon, what that means politically, religiously, uh, economically, and so forth. Uh, and then we got into the second coming. If we go back to our end times chart, and we spent a lot of time looking at things that will happen in conjunction with the second coming, such as the Battle of Armageddon. We looked at um, the key passages in Scripture about the second coming, Several of them. We didn't look at all of them in detail. Uh, and uh, along the way, we've talked about Daniel's 70th week and how that really is the key to understanding uh, prophetic literature. Got an email uh, this week from someone who wanted to know how we know the tribulation is seven years long. Easy answer. You go to Daniel 9, and he clearly describes it as seven years. Revelation also uses days, but those days correspond to the three-and-a-half-year sections of the seven-year tribulation. So it's not, not really in dispute that we're dealing with seven years, unless, of course, you dismiss the literal uh, nature of Scripture and assume that seven years means, you know, I don't know, uh, some, some strange interpretation. But uh, in the book of Revelation in particular, all of the numbers are intended to be taken literal uh, if you follow the normal plain reading uh, of Scripture. Uh, so it's always fun to talk to people. I got another call. This is a side note, but I got a call Thursday that really warmed my heart from a lady left a voicemail on our 1-800 number and I called her back. But the voicemail, I saved it because it was just so 
encouraging. And we get this, you know, typically once a week or so, something like this. And she just said, hello, my name is so-and-so. I was listening to something of yours, and I just have some questions about salvation. I'm just really uh, concerned uh, and want to be sure that I'm going to heaven. So I called her. We talked for about 20 to 30 minutes and just had a wonderful talk. She actually really knows the scriptures. In fact, at one point, uh, she was talking about a verse that said something or such and such, and I said, well, I'm not, I can't really think of any place where it says that, and she said, well, I'm pretty sure it's in there, so while we're talking, I'm looking it up, and sure enough, it was in there, so she thought of a verse that I hadn't even thought of, and we talked about that verse, and, uh, but by the end, she was really encouraged, and I got her address and sent her Getting the Gospel Wrong book, uh, Top Ten Reasons book, and Grace Unplugged book, all books that really, I mean, Gospel Unplugged, all books that really give clarity and understanding to the gospel but uh, she you know in the end really understood that she was a believer but she was just struggling with assurance because she had come under some bad teaching that suggested if she was sinning that somehow she wasn't a believer and so those are the things that just really make uh, you know really thrill my heart make my heart dance because it's it's why we do what we do and um, so uh, keep in mind as we <clears throat> go through this material that the reason we're studying the end times is not just because we like to be, you know, intellectual or academic or we like to be able to thumb our noses at people that disagree with us about the end times. We study this because it all comes back to the urgency of the hour and the recognition that uh, now is the day of salvation. The Lord is coming back. You don't want to wait until after uh, the return of the Lord to uh, gamble on whether or not you'll have the opportunity to trust Christ. Deception is going to get worse and worse and worse, and it will reach unprecedented heights during that seven-year uh, period that you see uh, listed on the screen there. So we want to talk this morning about some characteristics of the millennium, which really give us hope. You remember Paul said in uh, uh, Romans uh, 8 that uh, you know, the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed uh, in us. And what you're going to see as we kind of go down this journey uh, into the characteristics of the millennium is that that thousand-year period is going to be amazing. Now, of course, it even gets better after the thousand years and we enter the eternal state where there's not even a, a hint of sin anywhere on the earth. The whole earth is recreated in sinless uh, perfection. But the millennium itself, when Jesus Christ, our Savior, is ruling on the throne in perfect peace and justice and righteousness, will be a, a, a welcome change, to say the least, from what we see in this present age, where the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, and where Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and the God of this age, blinding men's hearts to uh, the gospel. So feel free to jump in with questions or comments and so forth, but we're going to start this morning with some geographical characteristics of the millennium, and then we'll get into time permitting either this week or when we pick it up again next time. By the way, we won't have our normal Sunday Bible study next Sunday. Instead, we're meeting at nine o'clock for a breakfast. Um, bring uh, Sign up for one of the dishes to bring out there on the sign-up sheet. We're going to have a meal together and just celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and then go right into our worship service immediately following the breakfast. So know uh, what lies ahead study next Sunday, April 17th. 
we'll pick it up again in two weeks on April the 24th. But we're going to look at some geographical characteristics, and then we'll get into some uh, social characteristics, what life will be like socially. Then we'll get into some of the um, religious or spiritual aspects of the kingdom, and then just some general characteristics. So a lot to cover, but it's it all is so encouraging, at least it was uh, to me, as we kind of walk through it. So the first thing that we need to understand is that the actual geography around Israel will be increased. There will be, uh, for the first time in Israel's history, when Christ comes back and takes the throne, they will actually inhabit the fullness of the boundaries of the kingdom that have been uh, promised to them. Now we know in Joshua's day that they sort of had uh, the rights to all of the land, and indeed, from the time God gave them the covenant in Genesis chapter 12, they've had the right to the land, but so far, never before have they fully inhabited it, but this will be the case uh, when uh, Christ comes back. So we look at passages like Isaiah 26, speaking of this future kingdom, when he says, you have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation, you are glorified, you have expanded all the borders of the land. <clears throat> And so right now, we see all kinds of uh, skirmishes and battles and border disputes over there in Israel, and we have ever since uh, 1948. And, uh, and yet, what we need to understand is that someday, uh, there won't be any dispute about the matter. Uh, the little prophet Obadiah says, But in Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob, speaking of course of Israel, shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now watch this. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And if you... <clears throat> look up those biblical names and compare them to the geography of today, you see that it's far greater, far greater than what Israel is on the map today. <clears throat> he goes on, the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Excuse me, I lost my voice <coughs> Wednesday night after I got home from Bible study and Thursday I could barely talk and it got better the last couple of days now all of a sudden it's getting worse <clears throat> so you see the ultimately he says the Savior shall come on Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's so this is all for God's glory someday and <laughs> if you go back to Genesis 15 this is where we see the boundaries and I've talked about this many times that he says to Abraham, an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So I've shown this map in here in this study before, but if you see on the screen there in red is modern day Israel. But if you put together all the biblical clues uh, of the geographic markers, when the millennium comes, when Christ comes back and takes the throne, that's going to be Israel. So they're going to inhabit parts of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Iraq, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Jordan, Syria. All of that is part of the Holy Land 
that Israel will inhabit. And of course, since it's a global kingdom, it makes sense because as we're going to see going through all of these characteristics, there are uh, plenty of references to the nations coming up to Israel. We talked last week about the rest restoration of the sacrificial system and the festivals and feasts. Well, it's one thing for that to be just you know the nation of Israel and surrounding Gentiles nations, but if you're talking about a global kingdom, you got to have room for them. And so uh, that's kind of one of the, the key characteristics is an increase in territory. But we also see, and they're kind of connected, topographical changes. That's the second uh, geographic characteristic of the millennium. And the famous verse that you've probably heard before is from Zechariah 14. Uh, when Christ comes back, it says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And now watch this. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountains shall move toward the north and half toward the south, so that you have this massive uh, area that is available there for the temple and things like that. Um, so uh, there are several other passages you know, that you could look at, Ezekiel 47. You know, so much of what we're going to be talking about in this section about the millennium <coughs> Uh, it comes from Ezekiel because Ezekiel, the end of it, chapters 40 to 48, there's 48 chapters in Ezekiel, are all about the coming kingdom and the temple and the boundaries and the, the architecture and the festivals and all of that. It's one of the reasons we know that the uh, sacrificial system will be reinstituted when Christ comes back. <clears throat> and so along those lines, then we also see that the center of the world's worship will be Jerusalem. The center of the world's worship uh, is Jerusalem during the millennium. Isaiah tells us, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So that's just a synonymous uh, repetition there at the end. Um, the law and the word of the Lord being the same thing. Zechariah puts it this way. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Uh, I want you to notice as we go through this over the next few weeks, how many times the Bible tells us Jerusalem will be called or named something else. I mean, through the years, Jerusalem has been uh, degraded. They've been put upon. They've been criticized. They've been labeled. Even in Scripture, we read God in his judgment and discipline has uh, called Israel names. But all of that gets set aside when Christ comes back and Israel reaches its full uh, potential. So we're going to look at some of those name changes in, in more detail. But, you know, I read that and I thought, Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. I mean, what a day that will be. Um, where, where's the city of truth today? That's what I want to know. I mean, it's certainly not Washington, D.C. I don't think it's Denver. Uh, I mean, I think Sedalia makes a pretty good candidate, um, mostly. But truly, I mean, it's not New York City. It's not, you know, 
China, anywhere in China or Moscow, right? We live in an age when truth is under attack. But in that day, when Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, comes back, then Jerusalem will be a city of truth. I mean, what, what a great day it will be to be able to count on what you hear on the news when the reporter says, well, the king of kings said this, and the king of kings promised to do this, and this is what's going to happen tomorrow, according to uh, the, the uh, you know, king of kings press secretary, <laughs> you know, and we'll be able to count on it, right? A city of truth. But all of uh, Jerusalem will be kind of the center of worship because, remember, the Bible comes full circle. It's always been about bringing God glory, you know, using his highest pinnacle of creation, mankind, made in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, to bring him glory. We were his image bearers. Um, we fell by our own choice when we chose to sin, corrupting the image of God in man. And God immediately set about a way to redeem us from our own predicament. We couldn't really dig ourselves out of the hole we made. And by his grace, we've been saved if we've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And now we are still his image bearers, and to the extent that we walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh and reflect the, the image of Christ within us, then we are bringing him glory. And this has been true for 6,000 years, even well before the church age. The nation of Israel was intended to be a light on a hill. <clears throat> That's what Jesus said in the uh, Sermon on the Mount before the church even existed. Um, but in that day, it will be a true city on a hill. And uh, the, the, the greatest representation of God's glory. In fact, and I think I'm going to talk about this verse a little bit later. We may not get there today. But in Hebrews chapter 1, we learn that in chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, that's Christ, uh, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's we're going to talk about glory. I don't know if we'll get to it this morning, but when Christ came, of course, glory uh, was a big part of that when the, the glory of the Lord shone around the angels as the announcement of his birth was made to the shepherds. Um, and so, but that glory was rejected. Uh, he didn't take the throne in the kingdom at his first advent. He was crucified. But when he comes back, he, he will take that uh, throne. And once again, God's glory will be manifested in its purest and truest sense. Uh, along with the topographical changes, we're going to see an enlargement of Jerusalem. So we know that the nation of Israel's promised land territory will be reach its fullest potential, as we talked about. But Jerusalem itself will be larger. And we get this from Ezekiel 48, 35, the very last verse in the book of Ezekiel, which ends with a powerful statement all the way around this is of the city, Jerusalem, shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that day, so here's another example, shall be Jehovah Shammah, Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. Uh, I mean, what a, what a meaningful thing that must have been 
to those uh, post-exilic Jews reading, com coming out of the devastation of the Babylonian Empire, reading all about this coming kingdom someday. Surely it felt like the Lord was far from them, right? And that's why so often we see this, and we see this in Revelation in connection with Christ's return, that when the kingdom comes, it will be, I will, he will say, I will be your God and you shall be my people. We'll be, you know, together, that, that uh, intimacy and that oneness, and not oneness in a unified sense, but just the close, intimate fellowship that we have with our Creator will be restored. I mean, <clears throat> prophetically speaking, you know, God is not in Jerusalem today. I mean, we know God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. I'm not denying that fundamental attribute of God. But let's face it, the Jews in the land today are there in unbelief, and they're there, frankly, not as a representation of the one true God. Not that there aren't believers in Christ in Jerusalem today. There are, just like there are everywhere else. But, uh, you know, God's word does not emanate from, you know, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. They're not proclaiming uh, the redemptive work of God through his son, Jesus Christ, their Messiah. But when the kingdom comes and the eternal son of God, the king of kings, the son of David comes back and takes the throne, the Lord will be there. So 18,000 cubits is about six miles. So if you kind of picture it, it's about a mile and a half on each side around the city. Now, ancient Jerusalem was about two and a half miles in circumference. And in Jesus' day in the first century, uh, the city of Jerusalem was about six. It was about four miles in circumference, so this is going to be a, a much bigger city, and the city walls will encompass a much bigger area, because according to Ezekiel, the temple itself will be uh, unmatched. You know, you think Solomon's temple was great. Well, that was destroyed in 586 B.C. Herod spent decades building a temple, basically to bring himself glory. That was destroyed in 70 A.D. There is no temple today because the church has, has, is God's focal point and God has set Israel aside temporarily. And so that's why Paul in the New Testament uses the metaphor that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and also that the church is the temple. Two different uh, places that it uses that. In one case, it's referring to the local church. In one place, it's referring to us as individual believers because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. But God's not through with the temple. And one day it's going to be rebuilt. And in fact, it has to be because in the first place, the Antichrist will take up residence in the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation and, uh, and uh, you know, desecrate the temple when he demands that everyone worship him. Uh, that's what Jesus and Daniel refer to as the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate desolation. Uh, but then that temple is going to be destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. And finally, we see the ultimate temple. And if you go back to Second <coughs> Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 7, and by the way, out at the information area out there in the lobby, we have Bibles. If anybody knows someone who needs a Bible or if you need a Bible, feel free to take one. That's what they're there for. But we uh, want to encourage you to stay in the Word. But the, the Davidic promise, the promise of a kingdom and a temple and a throne, are all uh, go back to God's promise in 2 Samuel. And 
he says uh, to David in this Davidic covenant, what we call the Davidic covenant, in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, 12, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, he's talking there about Solomon, right? He shall build a house for my name. Indeed, Solomon built the temple. Uh, and then he goes on to say, <clears throat> He shall, uh, I will establish his throne of the kingdom forever. And he goes on to say, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, if you believe that God means what he says, and you compare that promise to what's there today, you only have two options. You either think, well, God meant that the, the kingdom is going to continue spiritually, metaphorically, intangibly, or you believe there's going to be a future kingdom temple, throne, reign, all of those things, as so much of the rest of the Bible teaches. And the, the concept of original intent or authorial intent demands, as, as we go back and say, what would how would David have understood that promise? David knew nothing of the church. He knew nothing of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. These were all truths that weren't revealed till centuries later through the New Testament. And so when he hears kingdom and throne and house and those types of things, he only understood it in one way, literally. And then, of course, you go through the rest of Israel's history throughout the Old Testament, and you come to passages like Ezekiel that tell us that the, uh, or Haggai, the prophet Haggai, that the glory of the latter temple will be far greater than the glory of uh, the previous temple. So uh, it's just, an, it just to me, it's a meaningful verse there that kind of the capstone of, of Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel's description in chapter 48 there is similar to John uh, uh, who wrote the book of Revelation to his description in, John, in Revelation uh, 21, uh, especially the reference to 12 gates. Uh, what's different is Ezekiel actually specifies the name of each that's assigned to each gate. John simply said the gates will be named for the 12 tribes, but doesn't tell us which is which. Um, but uh, it's just a, a beautiful uh, description. So we see the enlargement of Jerusalem. And then here are a couple more examples of how Jerusalem's name will be changed. And again, it just emphasizes that God's unconditional covenant will come true despite Israel's failures, disobedience, lack of faith. Uh, remember, Hebrews tells us that it was their unbelief in the wilderness that led to them not getting into the promised land, the wilderness generation. Of course, the later generation did, but Moses and, uh, and, and those did not. Um, but so, for example, in Isaiah 62, <clears throat> the Gentiles, this is speaking of the future kingdom, shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now, that's been Israel's purpose all along. If you think back to our discussion of the purposes of God for Israel and the purposes of God for the church, one of the purposes of Israel was to testify to the unity and, and goodness of Yahweh, the Creator. And that will be the case in Isaiah 62. He goes on in, in the kingdom. In Isaiah 62, verse 4, he says, you shall no longer be termed forsaken. And you don't need much commentary on what that means. Nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate. 
but you shall be called Hephzibah, which in Hebrew means my delight is in her. I mean, how awesome is that to hear God say, my delight is in you. You know, uh, you know God delights in his people. People. He delights in his people, the church, the bride of Christ, and he delights in Israel. Um, he does not delight in us when we're not obeying him and we're bringing uh, shame to the cause of Christ, but he delights in us when we follow the Spirit. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. Um, and so Israel, who at times has, has been that light to, to Yahweh and been under the leadership of godly kings, but more often than not, has been rebelling against God and not following his ways. But in the kingdom, God will say, I'm going to call you Hephzibah. My delight is in you. But watch this, and I'm going to call your land Beulah. Beulah. Do you musically gifted people remember that old gospel song, Beulah Land? What a great song. Uh, anybody know what Beulah means? So, so how many of you don't re have never heard the song Beulah Land? Okay, we should try to sing that sometime or put it in the back of your radar. Uh, it's a great song. Beulah Land, oh, sweet Beulah Land. can't remember how it goes after that. Anyway, it's a, it's a great song. But what, what does Beulah mean? It means married. Married. In other words, God has been separated from Israel. Uh, but he's going to delight in her and marry her. Uh, that's why he goes on to explain for the Lord. And remember, anytime you see Lord in all caps, uh, like you see here on the screen, I, I always use New King James unless otherwise indicated on my slides. If I find another translation that I think really captures uh, what's trying to be communicated, sometimes I'll put that on there, but I'll show you the, the translation. Uh, so this is New King James and, and Lord in all caps, refers to Yahweh, the one true God, uh, the personal name for God. So the Lord delights in you, Hephzibah, and your land shall be married. So there's, again, this personal uh, connection. It kind of reminds me of the verse we just looked at in Isaiah 48, 35, Jehovah Shammah, or Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. So the very name of Jerusalem will be changed. And then, and we'll probably close with this, and then if we have any time left, see if you have any questions. But we've talked a lot about this in conjunction with the second coming of Christ, but now we're going to see it in the context of the millennium, and that is that the Jews who have been scattered abroad uh, since the first century will be regathered in the land. Regathered and then going back to Ezekiel, and this has been part of the New Covenant passage in Ezekiel. I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your land. Now, <clears throat> and then of course the next chapter of Ezekiel is the dry bones passage, and he goes on to say, They then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they their children, and their children's children, what? Forever. And my servant David shall be their prince uh, forever. 
Now, I understand that a lot of uh, Bible prophecy teachers who we respect and who agree with us overall in the big picture uh, take uh, May 15, 1948 as the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah, I mean of Ezekiel 37 and the dry bones coming back to life. Totally understand that. It certainly kind of seems to make sense. But I don't take it that way. And I'm going to explain why here in a second, but particularly because the regathering in the land is connected to both the second coming and the millennium. So what I like to say is that 1948 sets the stage. It kind of prepares the way. You've got to have an Israel nation if you're going to have people returning to the nation of Israel, right? So it's certainly a setting of the stage. But the description of this regathering that Jesus himself gives us in Matthew 24 does not fit with a natural, organic, you know, okay, we've declared statehood again, and so people can start journeying back. I think that's the, the beginnings of it, but I don't know that I would necessarily connect that to Ezekiel 37 any more than I connect the indwelling of the Holy Spirit today to Jeremiah 31, because again, the details of the passage don't fit what we see happening uh, today. I think all of this finds its full culmination, its full inauguration in the coming kingdom someday. What we see today is like a foretaste of that, a, a foreshadowing of what life will be like in the kingdom. But the Jews will be regathered in the land in fulfillment of prophecies going all the way back to, for example, in Deuteronomy. The Lord will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. And remember, when this happens, as I just said, it's forever. So we know that Jews that are there now are not there forever. They're going to flee. Jesus specifically said, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee the land. So how can 1948 be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 36, and some of these others, if in fact they're not there forever? But boy, when God brings them back supernaturally, they'll be there forever. We see Isaiah the prophet talk about this. So it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, just speaking of two of the biggest enemies of Israel through the years, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Now, how is this going to happen? Jesus tells us, and this is Jesus' own words, when he returns, he says, and he, speaking about himself, will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, Israel, from the four winds, from one end of heaven uh, to the other. So it's going to be a supernatural regathering. Again, there may already be Jews there. Undoubtedly, there will be, just like there are believing Jews there today. And maybe some of them will not flee the city. They'll hide out and survive until after the Battle of Armageddon. That's all fine. But the ultimate fulfillment of this regathering in the land, which is part and parcel to the coming kingdom. I mean, there's such an... And we, we spent a couple of weeks talking about this some time ago in this series, but the Holy Land of Israel, the significance of the Holy Land, uh, and how God repeatedly says, it's my land, it's my land, I'm jealous for my land. So there's, there's an inseparable connection between the land and the people and the king. And they all come back together uh, as one in this coming kingdom. And so a lot's happening today. A lot of, uh, uh, well, actually, in the immediate history here, the last few weeks, 
you see all eyes focused on the nations to the north, you know, the former Soviet nation of Ukraine and Russia and all of that. So Israel's kind of not on the radar, but boy, it will be on the radar in a big way uh, someday with the Battle of Gog and Magog described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, so Israel, I mean, Ezekiel just kind of tells the story. You see the promise of the new covenant in 36. You see the dry bones coming back to life in 37. You see the big battle in 38 and 39. And then you see the kingdom coming in 40 to 48, the final nine chapters of, uh, of Ezekiel. Um, so it's all kind of setting the stage. It's the reason we believe the return of Christ is nearer than ever before. So many things geopolitically kind of happening. Um, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to meeting the Lord in the air. So we'll stop there. I do have one more geographical one, which we'll pick up uh, next time. But any comments or questions about anything we've talked about so far, I'll put them up on the screen. Yeah. Will Jews be the only uh, inhabitants of the topographical changes of remnants inheriting the whole? So will Jews be the only inhabitants of this, you know, the, the expanded territory of Jerusalem? That's the question. So it's their land, and these promises of the regathering only speak about Israel. But certainly, as we're going to talk about when we get to some of the spiritual characteristics, People will come up from Gentile nations throughout the world to worship there. So there will be other people in the territory, uh, you know, to greater or lesser degree at different times. But it's their land, and it's for them when they when they come back. Yeah. Based on the topographical changes, so having stood on the Mount of Olives and looked into the city of Jerusalem, how is that going to? How's that going to happen without destroying at least part of what's there, now. what's there now? Well, what's there now? So the question is, how will these changes that take place in conjunction with Christ's return uh, take place without destroying what's there now? It needs to be destroyed. I mean, that's the whole point. He's going to make all things new. So the, all of those things there are part of the old way and now he's going to bring back the kingdom and that's why Haggai says the glory of this later temple will be far greater than anything before it so that would include the temple mount well the temple mount will just be bigger so the temple mount's not going to like go away it's just going to be larger you need a bigger foundation right so if you're going to add on an addition to your house you know you've got your footprint well you can't just start building studs and walls you got to you got to expand the foundation right and then you can build a bigger house and so that's what we'll see happening with the with the temple someday and it's possible that that's part of the reason for the 75 day interval uh after let me get put the chart back up here after the uh return of christ you see there on the screen it's you know the second coming and then based on daniel 12 we see you know, a 30-day interval followed immediately by a 45-day interval, or it might be 45 followed by 30. I can't remember, but it's 75 days total. And Daniel doesn't tell us what those that time period's for, but maybe it's, I mean, we assume it's to clean up all of the devastation and bloodshed from Armageddon and to begin to prepare the way for the big uh, temple construction project. But remember, when, when Christ comes back, all, and we're going to get to some of these social characteristics in the coming weeks, all of the normal limitations of work and labor and all of that and the problems and mistakes. You know, if you've ever done a building project, you know, it doesn't take but one mistake and it can set you back three months, you know. 
you know, if they just made a mistake. Supply chain issues, all of that, none of that will be a factor. So they can build this temple very, very quickly. And, and you think back to ancient times in the early days of the depravity of man when we were building, you know, uh, ziggurats and building uh, the Egyptian, uh, what are those triangles called? Pyramids, thank you. Uh, the pyramids and things like that. And people go, wow, how in the world did they do that? They didn't have cranes. They didn't have this. Well, they just went over and picked them up and stacked them because they were a lot stronger, a lot bigger, a lot taller. The depravity of man had only had a, you know, a few hundred years uh, to be affecting people. It's now 6,000 years later, and we, we're not as big. We're not as strong. We're not as smart, by the way. It affects the mind as well. So all of these, the curse of sin will be lessened when the king of kings comes back, and it'll be much easier to build it. So there's no problem envisioning the rebuilding of Ezekiel's temple within the time constraints uh, talked about in Scripture. Uh, Karen, and then you. Yeah. Oh, um, I realize that just like in Christianity, there's probably a wide variety of beliefs amongst Jews. But if they believe that they're the chosen people, okay, what do they believe happens to us? Do they believe that we're going to heaven or, you know, we have the great commission to try to bring people to Christ? But you don't see that within, at least I never hear of that within Jews, that they're trying to, you know, convert people to Judaism. So what do they believe as far as what happens to us? Yeah, so the question is, what do Jews who believe they're the chosen people uh, think is going to happen to us, non-Jews, the, the church, I assume you're talking yeah, about, or uh, yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, going to heaven and so forth. Well, first of all, the Jews who only read the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you, you, you recognize right away that it doesn't have a huge emphasis on individual eternal life. It's clearly there. I mean, it's a biblical principle and theological principle and truth. But the Old Testament, uh, by and large, emphasizes the national earthly promises of God's chosen nation, Israel. And so you have to kind of, you know, really study it in detail to get to those few places where it does talk about it. Like, uh, you know, David talks about how, you know, I can go to him, but he can't come to me, talking about his son that died. And so they understood there was an afterlife, but mostly the Hebrew word is sheol or just grave. Um, and so <clears throat> they would not be as concerned as we are having the New Testament progressive revelation of God and the evangelistic urgency about the eternal destiny of people. Their focus would be on bringing us into the kingdom, bringing us into the fold. So proselyting and, and getting us to convert to Judaism and be a part of the kingdom. So what I'm, I'm just thinking out loud based on, you know, scripture and, and what little I know about modern day Judaism, you know, what they hope is that we recognize their God is the true God and we convert to Judaism, really. Um, now, they may, if you press them, think that that then means they end up in heaven. But remember, even we use go to heaven when you die as, as a metonym for the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed. According to scripture, What's the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed, of all saved people? The new heavens and the new earth. So it's not just about going to heaven. It's about being in the presence of God in the recreated kingdom, which is a heaven, heavenly and earthly. So I just don't think they have 
as developed and sophisticated an understanding uh, or focus on, I wouldn't say, I don't want to make it sound like it's understanding like they're dumb or something, not at all. They're just, their focus is, is different. So, but I definitely think that they believe that their way is the right way and they hope that we convert to Judaism, you know. Yeah, back here. So I don't, so, yeah, the question is about Psalm 83. Let's look at that real quick. We're out of time, but let's just quickly give you the answer. I do not believe that Psalm 83 is prophetic. Okay, there's nothing in uh, Psalm 83 that leads us to believe it's, it's a future prediction. Um, it is just uh, a description of something that's happening historically. Um, I just don't take the Psalm 83 passage as a prophet, prophecy. Now, a lot of uh, Bible prophecy teachers today try to make comparisons to uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, which clearly is a prophecy in context, and, and say that this is another reference to Gog and Magog. But similarity does not equal, equation, you know, equal. And so unless someone can point to me, because uh, a lot of the Psalms are prophetic, Clearly, the Messianic Psalms in particular, Psalm 118, Psalm 2, Psalm 22. And we have New Testament references that we can point to to, to to prove that. But I don't see anything in here that says anything like, Thus saith the Lord, this is what shall come, or this is what's going to happen. So I think it's just a regular uh, psalm like some of the others that talks about uh, Israel's journey and their, and their you know events in history. So, But I could be wrong. So, I mean, I'm not... The people who hold Psalm 83, kind of like the people who hold Ezekiel 37 as already being fulfilled, generally agree with our overall understanding of God's plan of the ages. So I'm not, I'm not going to criticize. I just don't take it that way. All right, well, let's take a break. Um, we'll come back together here in uh, the building at uh, 10 o'clock for the start of our worship service. And then for those of you live streaming, we, we turn back on the live streaming uh, when the message starts, and that's usually about 1025 to 1035 mountain time, so roughly uh, 30 to 40 minutes from now, something like that. All right. Take care.